0: Well there are different forms of C that we encounter in life not all are literal some are some are within. And so let us consider this this morning as we turn in our copies of God's word to 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll find this on page 414 of the church Bible. 1 Kings 19 And this morning, we're only going to read the first four verses. Hear now the word of Almighty God. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if i do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time and when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there but he himself went today's journey into the wilderness And came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And said. It is enough. Now Lord take my life. For I am no better than my fathers. The grass withers. The flowers fade. This word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this, your word. May your spirit apply what it would teach us to our hearts, both to be challenged in our own sin and to comfort those who are struggling. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, return this week to our Respectable Sins series. This is another of those respectable sins, uh, as I had mentioned with anxiety. It's a respectable sin that's especially difficult because, uh, well, because some of us especially deal with it. And others in pride might look down on those who do. It's especially difficult because, like anxiety, anxiety. It is a holistic struggle in the person. And so I want to give the same qualification to start that I gave with anxiety. When we look at anxiety, when we look at depression, we we might ask and we might be divided on this subject in the church. Is it a sin or is it a medical condition? And as with anxiety, I want us to acknowledge yes. It is a sin, and it is a medical condition. That makes it especially hard, doesn't it? A medical condition, we, we want to say, I can't help a medical condition. Often that's, that's true to an extent. And this fits with good theology. When we talk about the fall of, of mankind, when Adam ate into that fruit, we talk not only of us all falling into and being therefore sinners. But falling with creation as through sin, death entered the world, decay entered the world, and brokenness is true of our body. That's not only true of the the decay and the, the movement towards death of our bodies in a very physical way, but also in an emotional way and in a psychological way. We are the shattered image of God. We are the 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 twisted and and fall affected humanity. And so that's the first qualification in this sermon on depression that depression may be a medical a medical condition for some of you. The first, one of the first things I talk about when people come into my office to talk about depression or talk to me on the phone. One of the first things I ask is, are you getting enough fresh air? Are you exercising in life enough? Are you eating healthy all of those things can affect you and cause depression. If you're eating uh, Big Macs eight times a week and you haven't touched a vegetable, something green or, or, uh, or a beet or a, a carrot in six months, then maybe you're depressed because your body isn't getting what it needs. And that's the that's first thing to think about. We don't want to Be so caught up. uh, This is sin uh, that we lose sight that maybe it's also your health. And maybe, maybe if you're exercising and eating healthy, you still need to talk to a doctor about other things that might help you with the medical side of depression. That's a qualification. Qualification. But don't let that qualification rule out the reality that depression is often, usually, I I think, even in some way, uh, connected to some form of sin, even though it might also be medical. And so we, we want that qualification not to be an extremist on one side or the other. And sadly, most Christians fall on one side or the other. Oh, it's all medical, don't talk to me about sin. Or, it's sin, don't talk to me about talking to a doctor. I want to give two other qualifications as well this morning before we dive into thinking more deeply about what I'll call spiritual depression, the sin side of depression. And that is... Uh, Secondly, I want to qualify that not all sadness and not all grief are depression. Not all sorrow and not all grief are depression. That's important in case there are some tender hearts here this morning, which I hope there are, uh, who are sorrowing, who are grieving in various ways. To think that necessarily sorrow and grief are depression and therefore sin. There's a difference. In fact, the Puritans who are sometimes miscategorized in a very harsh way as as being uh, cold people, emotionless and and uh, stoic, were very emphatic. Those Puritans, especially who wrote on depression as a sin always seem to qualify this at the beginning, that not all grief and not all sorrow are depression. There's a distinction. Third qualification goes right along with that, that it is right and proper for Christians to view many things seriously and with sadness in a fallen world. To be stoic in a way that you, you aren't sad when you look at injustice, when you look at human suffering, when you look at broken relationships, that, that is not a, a spiritual thing. That's actually a problem. If you're apathetic to what's going on as a Christian, you ought to be saddened by these things, and that is distinct from being depressed. There's a difference. So I want those three qualifications before us as we think about depression from Scripture this morning. And perhaps this might help us a little bit as we think about depression. There are different types of depression. Um, but when we think about the sin of depression, I think we can say that the sin usually has This involved, that the sin of depression is an immoderate and unbalanced sadness or grief. Not all grieving, not all sorrow is is, uh, depression, but depression is an immoderate amount of those things. An unbalanced amount of those things, unbalanced when you look at the things that make you sad and when you look at other factors. For the Christian, obviously, the gospel is part of that factor, right? And when you give the sorrow and the sadness an immoderate weight in relation to... It's not only the gospel, although obviously that should weigh the heaviest for us, shouldn't it? But also other good things in your life. So depression is an immoderate and inordinate grief, an unbalanced sadness in our life. And sadly, many of us have many moments of that in our lives. I think one of the struggles with depression in the Christian life is that I'm about to preach two sermons, one this week and one next week, on depression. Spiritual depression, maybe we can call it. The sin of depression. And I'm going to suggest things to look for to try to identify and deal with our depression. And yet, when you're in the midst of the even the sin of depression, often you cannot pinpoint those things in which you are unbelieving. Unbelieving. Uh, The sin of depression in the end of the day often is tied to some form of not trusting God in some area of your life. And yet, when you're in the midst of it, you can honestly look your pastor in the eye or a friend in the eye and and say, no, I'm trusting God still, but... And it's... I'm not mocking that, right? That's how many things in your life do you think I'm trusting God, but I'm anxious. I'm trusting God, but I'm angry. I'm trusting God, but I'm depressed. We, we can't always identify well, at least for ourselves, where our unbelief lies when we're in the midst of it. But we ought to pray for the sight of that as David prayed, uh, which we started our series on respectable sins with us, didn't we? David prays, show me my secret faults, the areas of unbelief I can't see. The sin of depression is one of the saddest things in the world for which we ought to have very real sympathy. And so some of you don't struggle with depression in your life, not often, not much. And uh, if you're that person, then what you ought to be getting out of this series is sympathy, sympathy and patience. While at the same time we say, as sympathetic as we are, depression is a sin and we need to deal with it. We need to repent of it when we find it in ourselves and seek God's work to restore us. It's a lot of qualifications, isn't it? But I think we need that. And so next week, next week, I want to look at some cures or some salves, some things that might help in the midst of depression. But this week I want to look at identifiers of the causes we might have for depression. This won't be an exhaustive. Maybe none of today's points pinpoint why you get depressed, but here are some we can look for for spiritual depression as we look at the life of Elijah. The sin of depression wasting away And refusing to acknowledge the full joy of the salvation we have in Christ. And yet, I think as we go into this, a beautiful quote I hear might encourage us as we think about Elijah today. Joel Beakey comments, even though God hates sin in his people. And even though God hates unbelief in his people. God does not desert his people even when they seem to desert him. The sin of depression often is a form of desertion. But as we see in Elijah's experience, God does not desert his depressed child, even when his children seem to run from him. Elijah in our text runs he runs from duty responsibility he runs from the people of God the community of believers he even estranges himself from his faithful companion his servant as we often do in depression he isolates himself from the sources that might draw us out of depression And isolating himself and getting into this deep pit of depression, Elijah says, Under that tree, just kill me. Some of you may never experience depression that causes you suicidal thoughts. I hope. I hope. Elijah did. That's a suicidal thought to pray to God. Just kill me. It stops short of seeking it yourself, but it's begging for someone to do it to you. God. That's why I think he's a great example for us of looking at the sin of depression. Because no matter how deep you get into the depth of depression... Elijah knows what it was like. You can't say this text is about someone who has a pathetic version of it compared to you. He wanted to die. Consider some of the causes of depression that we find at least at least suggested here in Elijah. I think there's four and they're interconnected. And one will lead to the next. Uh, So uh, follow with me. The first sticking with this first uh, qualification that we have to think holistically. One of the great reasons why Christians fall into depression. One cause is just exhaustion. I want you to think about Elijah's experience when this happens to him. think think of his labors on Mount Carmel mocking the false prophets very sarcastically. Whatever you think about the right or wrong of sarcasm, Elijah was sarcastic there, but, but it wasn't like when you and I tend to be sarcastic maybe. He was being sarcastic to those who wanted to kill him. They wanted an excuse to kill him. He's on that mountain, and he is declaring in front of the people, well, well, where is Baal? Is he out to lunch? Is he taking vacation? Is he taking a nap? Why won't he respond? But he's surrounded by people who want him dead. And a king who has the authority to command him to be killed. This is an important task he has. And, and at the end of doing that, then he, then he covers his own sacrifice with water. And then he fervently prays. And if you fervently pray, even if prayer is one of your gifts, and most many of us, I, I know, we struggle to pray. But even if it's a gift, fervent prayer is exhausting, isn't it? It drains you when you fervently pray. He fervently prays that fire would come from heaven and devour the water and the sacrifice. And it does. Then he commands the prophets to be killed and the text uh, uh, indicates that he himself took the sword and did some of the executions at least. That's not physically easy work. Then he fervently prays, says James, and rain falls after three and a half years. And then in the midst of the rain, he, he has a race with Ahab. Ahab's in the chariot. He's on foot. The chariot gets stuck in the mud. He runs through the mud and wins the race. is it any wonder that such a man might be a little exhausted and fatigued at the end of all that? And, and much spiritual depression can come after similar, well, <laughs> somewhat similar circumstances in our lives. What, what would be the, the closest similarity? Well, in terms of um, the spiritual walk, it, it might be something like uh, evangelizing a friend really intense conversation that you've prayed for for years and you get that opportunity to share the gospel with them and maybe it's even a debate where they're challenging and you're having to think hard for answers on the spot and as you come to the end of that time you, you fervently pray for their salvation. That can be exhausting. The next day you, you might find it hard to get up and go to work. You, you've just drained yourself. Or uh, I often see this happening with uh, with retreats and conferences. You, you get that spiritual high. I just heard Sinclair Ferguson and John Piper and John MacArthur all in one day. This is amazing. Um, I'm going to really do devotions from now on. And you're just on fire for God or you go on a retreat and you get rejuvenated and you think I'm going to do consistent devotions now. And I'm going to start going to Wednesday night Bible study every week on on time. And a week later, you find that you haven't done your devotions more consistently. You forgot to go to Wednesday prayer meeting and you're just burnt (sighs) spiritually. You're exhausted even though you thought that was the thing that was going to revive you, you find yourself exhausted and burnt out. Instead, it's hard to want to pick up the Bible. And you see similar things also in church leadership sometimes when you have something big going on. There's that old joke about pastors who preach their heart out on Sunday and then Monday write their letter of resignation every week the Monday blues for pastors, by the way, that's not, I'm, I might struggle with depression sometimes, but that's not the form mine takes. So you don't have to pray about that for me. I've never written a letter of resignation on Monday, even in my head. Uh, never written a letter of resignation, even in my head. I'll leave, I won't i will even leave it on Monday. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but we can think of a lot of ways spiritually that works. But it's not even just spiritual, is it? You put all your energies into getting ready for Thanksgiving. Because you're hosting your whole clan. Or or you throw a wedding for your children. Or, or you... Uh, throw a 40th anniversary party or something like that and you just pour yourself into it and then what happens the week after the day after that evening you just crash and it's hard to even think of ordering a pizza let alone cooking dinner and that can affect you spiritually in the days ahead as well and leave you exhausted and Depressed, Exhaustion can be a real source of depression. The, the funny thing is we don't always connect those two dots. It might be obvious to everyone who loves you that you're, that you're struggling today, that you're depressed because last week you did all that. You just came to the end of a massive project and now you're depressed. It may be obvious to everyone, but in depression it's not always obvious to you. So one thing to ask yourself is, have I just done a lot of things that might have led to this? Oh, of course, tied to exhaustion, tied to exhaustion is often the depressed thought as we lay there exhausted, I thought I would feel different afterwards. And that can be tied into to two other causes of depression. One of those is Pride. Now, the text never uses the word pride about Elijah. But I want you to think about all those events again. Imagine in his shoes if it was you. Here, after three years of there being no revival in the church, no good thing happening, so it seems, in the church at all, suddenly you pray and no one else prayed and God sent fire from heaven. You prayed, and fire fell out of heaven. You did that. You prayed, and fire fell out of heaven, with the result that the people screamed, The Lord! He is God! The Lord! He is God! You're the one that did the actions that led to them doing that. See, see how pride can move in there? You're Yahweh's champion. And these people are yelling. Some of, some of that glory has to come to you. You are the one that killed the prophets of Baal. You are the one that fervently prayed and rain fell from heaven. By the way, you're also the one that prayed and rain didn't fall from heaven for three years. God hears your prayers, no one else's. Or so your heart tells you. Then you outran a chariot. Who cares if there was mud it got stuck in? You still had to run through the mud. You, you run and you ran and you won that race. Pride. It'd be astonishing if you didn't have pride, wouldn't it? Astonishing. And in fact, I think the text puts this in implicitly. When you read the whole Elijah narrative, Up to this point, there is very little about Elijah choosing to do anything. Up to this point in the Elijah narrative of 1 Kings, it is, thus says the Lord. It is, the Lord said to Elijah, and so Elijah did it. And now suddenly in our text, we see right here, Jezebel makes a verbal threat through a messenger and Elijah sees it. There, there might be something in that, by the way, as an aside. That when we're, when we're in our pride and depression, we see things that aren't really there. Here, here's a vain threat. We'll come back to that in a minute. But here, here's a, a vain threat made by a human against the servant of Yahweh who just consumed the sacrifice and burnt up the top of a mountain and killed all the people prophets of Baal, but but here's this threat by her, but what he sees is her succeeding already. But, But that's a bit of an aside, but notice from that statement, he sees it, he saw it, onward, it's him. He saw and he ran. He ran and he left. He left and he went and he sat and he said. And as we'll read next week, When he gets to the mountain of God, he will say, I have been very zealous for the Lord and I alone am left. Do You see that shift that the Holy Spirit puts into the text itself, suggesting perhaps that this man with a passion like ours struggled with pride like we would. And when we fall from the pinnacle of pride, that pit of despair can be even more crushing. When we let ourselves puff up, depression can hit even harder. We need to be on guard. Spiritually against pride in all circumstances. And for some of us, especially because pride will be the forerunner for us into gloom and despair. Pride. And of course, tied to exhaustion and tied to pride. And when our pride fails us, there's a third cause of depression. Disappointment. Disappointment. Again, I, I thought things would be better now. Here I was living with all these widows in the wilderness and outside of Israel. Now I came back. We finally got fire from heaven. We finally got rid of the prophets of Baal. We finally have rain again. Revival! Revival! Obviously! I'm going to run into to the the capital and I'm going to find all the people of God storming the castle and executing Jezebel and offering sacrifices as we return to Jerusalem and to the king after God's own heart the son of David as we get back to the one temple of God surely if ever that's going to happen look at Mount Carmel that's step one And he gets to the city, and what does he find? Death threats. He finds his face on the wanted posters. Where are all the people of God? Disappointment with the people of God. Why are they hiding? Or maybe they just don't know God. Maybe they just don't care. After all I've done for the church... And they can't even stand with me. Disappointment. Uh, How often is our cause for disappointment with the people of God far less than I mean, can't we all agree if ever a man had a reason to believe that the church would rise up and stand beside him and seek his opinion on what the future of the church should be, it should be Elijah right now. More so than you or I ever have a cause for. I've never called fire from heaven. And yet, they're not there. And we get disappointed with the church for so much less. When the church doesn't see our vision. When the church doesn't appreciate my gifts. When the church doesn't do what I think the church needs to do. We get depressed and discouraged and angry. Disappointment with the church. What's the point? What's the point? And disappointed with the church never stops with the church, does it? Don't you think maybe there's a little disappointment with God? God, I've done all my part. Where are you in this? Other than fire from heaven and rain from heaven. But where are you, God? I had a good plan. All of this is Church focused, I realize, but you can extrapolate that into other areas of life, can't you? Disappointment with your family, your employer or employees, your neighborhood, whatever the thing might be. Look at all that I've done for you, ungrateful children. (laughs) Look at all that I've done for you ungrateful employer or students or siblings. Look at all this that I've done and you're not stepping up to do your part. And in all of those ways, there's always the subtle disappointment with God. My plan was so good. Are you in charge or not? God doesn't bring the kingdom on earth as we often expect him to. And he doesn't bring the kingdom into your life and into your neighborhood in the way that you often wish he would. And he doesn't bring enjoyment always. Let's step back even from just purely thinking about the kingdom. He doesn't even bring peace into your life the way that you think would be the nicest way for peace. And so Elijah is depressed. He doesn't cry out in the streets for repentance now. He, he doesn't take a stand in the capital and wait to see if 7,000 who have never bowed the knee might show up to surround him against the queen. Nope. Because he wanted to find them there in the first place already doing that job. Maybe it isn't surprising he abandons the one who's with him, his servant. Maybe there's even a thought in his mind that abandoning that servant will keep that servant a little safer. But he's still putting himself alone in the wilderness with his depression. And he's still crying out to God, having fallen from his place of pride. I'm no better than my father's. My father's didn't pull off revival. I guess I won't either. Just kill me. I'm done. There's a fourth cause, of course, for depression. There are a lot of other causes. But the fourth, I I think we see in Elijah. Fear. Fear, why not? Jezebel is vicious and she has made herself clear, hasn't she? 24 hours, you're dead. And she's not a vain threat giver. She doesn't have a reputation like so many politicians of not doing what she said. She says it, she does it. So I think we can understand his fear, although... In his fear, don't we see our own problem often with fear when it comes to providence and the fear of man? She may have made herself clear, but didn't Yahweh just make himself clear with fire and with rain? Is he able to protect you? Well, if we think about the fire and the rain, we we surely should have to say yes. If we look at Elijah, we say, how could he think anything else? I've never had ravens come and feed me like he did on multiple occasions. Or an angel come and feed me like he's about to experience in the next passage. But we too are narrow-visioned. When it comes to fear, the fear of man, the fear of circumstances and fear plays off of that disappointment, especially our disappointment with God. Clearly, I knew better, but providence seems disappointing and and frankly, it's terrifying. Maybe God's plan is for me to die like a martyr when I thought it was to get this revival going. Well, maybe it is God's plan for you to die as a martyr to get the revival going. But none of us wants that, do we? And it's a fearful thing. And it can be depressing. Very depressing. And many other things in life can be depressing as well. I I thought providence would be different. Maybe a child grows up and and doesn't profess the faith. Thought providence would be different. Maybe, Maybe the loved one isn't going to get better. Thought providence would be different. Thought they would live to see all these markers in my life. They won't. And how am I going to live my life without them here? It's a very real thing, isn't it? Fear that leads to depression, which is a struggle with disappointment in God's providence and humbles us from our pride and leaves us exhausted. Next week, we'll look at some cures. Cures. Amen. No, we can't can't quite stop like that, can we? Next week, I I hope to look at cures. Maybe balm is a better word than cures, because it indicates it doesn't happen like that. (laughs) Next week, we'll look at some salves that God gives us for our discouraged, depressed wounds. This week, I do want us to just acknowledge how much sin is so often tied up in our despair, in our discouragement, in our depression. Do these things. Exhaustion, pride, disappointment with others, disappointment with God, and fear play a part in your depression. Think about that. Think about it before you're depressed, ideally. But then, then beloved, if you say yes to any of those things, be encouraged with this thought. Be encouraged to pursue this attitude, but also be encouraged by this thought from the Apostle Paul. Words we already read this morning. Hear them again. A man who, like Elijah, was brought to face death but responded differently. The words of our God through the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us In our tribulation. Yes, even the tribulation of depression. That's a form of of tribulation, isn't it? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the suffering of Christ abound in us so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, Should that be a capitalized sufferings? The sufferings of Christ for his sake? Maybe. So also you all partake of the consolation. Paul says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that, like Elijah, we despaired of life. But what did Paul do with that? Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Have you ever come to the same depths as Elijah? God, just kill me. Here, Paul, that God raises the dead. And he is able to raise you out of the deepest pit of depression and despair. Look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... uh, We are weak, and we are small, and we often feel surrounded. Our grief, our pain, and our discouragement often seem to overwhelm our life. Lord, we thank you for your son, our risen king. And we do pray, Lord, for any in our congregation who especially struggle with depression and despair, that you would make them thrive. In the life of Christ today. And may we as a congregation. Have eyes to see those. Who are overwhelmed. And despairing. And depressed. Those who are suffering. And come along them. To help them see the life. Which is hidden in Christ. Above. And dear Lord, we pray that by means of a humble confidence in your Son, we would be a faithful testimony in all of life to a world that has no hope. All this we ask, Father, for the glory of your great name. Amen.